good this end. Thank you very much for, for joining us. And also thank you for agreeing to be a Dovestep patron. Uh, indeed, our first patron. Uh, you're, you're more than welcome. It's such a, a worthy and worthwhile cause. And I I remember, I think it was the early 1990s, I was working for the RSPB. I remember going down and seeing the last few turtles we had nesting in Wales. You know, we had, at that time, probably no more than between four and six breeding pairs, I think. But um, they, they're gone now, unfortunately. They're long gone. And it's, it's such a, a sad loss because it's the sound of summer. You know, when you sit down, you hear that lovely purring noise. It's a beautiful noise and stunning birds. And to think that they've gone and in my lifetime are very unlikely to come back uh, is incredibly sad. So, no, I'm a massive supporter of everything you're doing and the cause itself as well. Brilliant. Um, I certainly feel your your pain with those birds. My my first turtle does are up at uh, Howarthburn Reservoir, up you know up up towards towards Hartlepool, and obviously they you know they've not been there for years. But but to that end, the last um, dovestep effort and indeed the upcoming effort in May, they're supporting the the population up in North Yorkshire. So, oh, fantastic. Yeah, we're going to have the chap come on uh, on the next episode to explain what the funds from the 2019 effort went towards. But it was it was pond and habitat creation, basically, in, in known, known turtle dove hotspot. So, yeah, if we can get the northern population bolstered and then infill, brilliant. And then maybe we'll work across uh, west towards you. But, uh, yeah, it, it's obviously uh, quite the challenge. It's not... Uh, it's a species in free fall decline, so we've got to be realistic as well. Yeah, but it's it, it's incredibly sad when you when you look at this bird, you know, and, and it's indicative of so many other birds as well that the turtle dove is hammered every step of its uh, life cycle, really, from when it hatches out as a chick to all the way through to when it migrates and migrates back, and you, you know, the poor thing is so up against it, the habitat loss loss of food in so many areas and then it's you know shot and trapped and uh, it's just incredibly sad and, and I feel in Wales it's got to be landscape management and until Natural Resources Wales pulls its finger out because at the moment it's an absolute load of rubbish and, and actually gets the agri-environment scheme right we're not going to see turtle doves back we're not going to see corn buntings we're probably going to lose things like yellow hammers as well um, and and it, it, we, we're at crisis point, we genuinely are, and I just do not understand the politics of this whole thing, that it, yes, we've got we've to produce food, we know that, but you know, you look at the land around me here, and it is a green desert, it really is a green desert, and it shouldn't be, you know, maybe if it's one in every 50 field that they manage for wildlife, it, it, it doesn't matter, it would make a, a, a huge difference, and in order to do that, They've got to get the agri-environment scheme right. And uh, I can't see that happening under this current scheme that we've got and under the Natural Resources Wales as it stands. Yeah, and I sympathise with that. Um, funds from, I think it was the first Dovestep effort, landed between agri-environment schemes. So it effectively gave uh, Operation Turtle of a Purse to deliver what would have been through you know, a higher level or or um, entry-level scheme, but, you know, looking north from here, you, you have these pockets, you know, nice pockets around the River Valley, 
and then maybe the odd conscientious farmer or a bit of relic Breckland. And then you've got, like you said, a green desert until you get corn buntings again. And, uh, you know, yeah. a better density of turtle doves. So I only saw one turtle dove last year, um, one of my sort of traditional pairs, but that was a symptom of lockdown and not been allowed to go sort of far, far enough to find them. Do you know what? I only saw one last year. Before last year, I hadn't seen one for, I think it's 80, 80 years, I think it was. Um, and the one I saw last year, believe it or not, was in September up on Mull. I was leading a group when lockdown briefly came to an end. Yeah. I was leading a group and we had a juvenile turtle dove up on Mull. I think it was the first Mull record for about 10 years, I think. But, uh, Brilliant, yeah. It was just, I was delighted to see that. Absolutely delighted to see that. So, so where do you reckon that bird came from? Do you reckon, over the do you top? Know, I, not a clue because you know it's a long long way off course long way off course and the, and the last one i saw before that eight miles eight, eight miles eight years before was on the island of Skokholm. oh brilliant uh, so you've, you've got prior to island turtle doves yeah so <laughs> I, it's just weird and, and before that it would have been a couple of years before that and that would have been down in sussex right. you know, that was the last uh, breeding uh, bird that i saw and and, and listened to making that beautiful purring noise that they've got. But, yeah, it's just been a couple of passage birds over the last 10 years for me now. Yeah, I, we, we are relatively lucky to be in something of a stronghold still, you know, just, just about, especially on sort of hinterland habitats, so the edge of Forestry Commission, the, the edge of Heath, or, yeah, just, you know, nicer bits of the River Valley. So, yeah, I do. I'm not taking it for granted because I'm losing my sights every year. But yeah, I still, still absolutely love that sound. And uh, in particular in the forest, when it sort of reverberates, if you get a clearing, yeah. that's that's lovely, yeah. So are you, still, are you still managing to get your wildlife fix in this lockdown? I, I, yeah, I am. I'm very lucky in where I live here. And I'm lucky in my work, really, because of the work we do. Uh, well, there's not much work around, I've got to be honest. Winter watch, I had a chunk of two weeks, and there's nothing now till probably till spring watch because all the guiding is gone. No. Um, but before lockdown, before we had this latest lockdown, I think it's four we've had now in Wales, I was able to get up uh, onto some of the moors, onto the coast and what have you. And last spring, because lockdown was eased for a while, I was still able to get up and do, uh, as I do every year in my own time, get up onto the moors and monitoring things like Hen Harrier and Merlin and Ring Oozle and some of the rare plants up there, lesser toy blades. Um, which I love, you know, which I've done since I was since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Really, I'm finding my first harrier nest when I was that would have been oh, 1973, so I would have been 10 years old, nearly 11 years old, um, and and I've gone up there under license and uh, been monitoring pairs ever since. So yeah, yeah I, I'm I'm lucky. And even with lockdown, I'm able to get out and about the local lanes, see the local woods. I can walk to the local reserve where I can see things like otters and uh, I had a pair of oyster catchers back on territory uh, just on Saturday. There are tree sparrows there, just a handful left, not many now. So, yeah, I, 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 I can get my wildlife fixed, but I, I must admit, fourth lockdown is starting to get to me now. We've got a little bit of cabin fever. Yeah, yeah I, I agree. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to identify any waders when I'm finally able to get to an estuary. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm just going to be overwhelmed. But uh, I'm, je I'm jealous of your otter. But because of training this year, I've sometimes been going out really early in the morning. And I've twice yeah. now had otter, the eye shine in my headlamp. 
So the first time it, it sort of threw me a bit, and the second time it was I heard the the splash when it went into the river, and then the the eye shine looking back up at me. So I've not seen an otter beyond the eye shine this year, but you know, fingers crossed. Nice, nice to know they're nearby. Yeah, it, it's it is. You know, I mean, we dwell a lot on the declines of our wildlife, and there's no doubt, Derek, that it is a mess. It's a it's it, it really is. You know, we 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 need to turn things around quickly, but we mustn't forget that there are some success stories as well the otter being one of them you know when, when i was a kid uh, i was very much influenced by tide my granddad he used to take me under his wing showed me how to find bird's nest and fishing and catching fish with my hands tickling fish and all this kind of stuff and it, his dream was to show me an otter and he wasn't able to because in those days you know we're talking about here the mid to late 60s the early 70s otters in wales were really very scarce so uh it's nice that now I can go to virtually any river and find signs of them, if not see the animal itself. Yeah. So you, you think back to your grandfather when you do see them nowadays? Yeah, I do, you know, and I know that he would be delighted. He'd be so saddened to see things like lapwings, which, you know, when we used to go out, I used to hang on his hand like a little three, four, five-year-old hang on his hand. We used to go out find lapwings and curly and nesting snipe and that kind of thing. He would be he'd be heartbroken to see that they've gone, but he would be delighted to see that otters are back. Yeah, brilliant. You, yeah. I, my father was um, was a warden uh, on various nature reserves. You know, as part of um, his doctorate and, and ongoing research uh, commissions. So I do have very very early memories of of doing that sort of work with him upon Rockcliffe Marsh. You know, like the amount to which is real memory and the amount to which is sort of transplanted through stories, I'm not sure. But I do remember yeah. seeing, you know, lap, lapwing eggs on the deck and my grandfather being there. So it was, yeah, yeah, many, many uh, sort of memories ago and half real, probably half half sort of uh, filling in the gaps. But yeah, very happy memories. You, you mentioned you're going up onto the tops and uh, surveying the, uh, the raptors and the plants up there. So that's been in your in your own time and, and, and also as part of your RSPB career? Yeah, it, uh, all of it now is, is in my own time, but, but it's, um, it's really important for me to, even in busy years, and you know, last year was, was dead, this year will be dead again, but it, in busy years, I always say, okay, you know, once every three weeks, I'm going to have a day where I do my own thing. I, I go up on the moors, uh, wherever I'll go, just for me and as for my own mental health as much as anything else but it means getting away from everyone and everything and just i love that just spending a day either by myself or with a really good mate up on the moors finding hen harrier nests monitoring them sending the records away you know i, I make time every single year for that and of course uh, yeah i used to work i worked for the rsbb for nearly 15 years um and part of that work was to monitor well, it, it, it was it was threefold, really. It was always called a species officer for whales. So the first part was species monitoring, um, kind of keeping an eye on particularly scarce birds. Then that would have included red kites in those days, of course, hen harriers as well. It would have included black grouse, chuff, but also the commoner birds, often through our wardens, monitoring of uh, things like red stats, pipe flight catchers in nest boxes, it would be samples. You know, we would sample areas for breeding lapwing or breeding curly or whatever it was. Another part was giving advice to big landowners, going out and talking to some of the big landowners about how best to manage the land 
to benefit particularly birds but other wildlife as well and that would have included people like national trust forestry commission in those days some of the biggest states as well and the final one was the investigations link you know there's a well-known investigations department at the lodge but often i was the first port of call here in wales because i was nearer i was on the ground i knew the people here um and so you know it's to spend most weekends if not every weekend between i would say the end of february and probably early june just out and about trying to catch people stealing eggs trying to catch people illegal shooting illegal poisoning whatever it was so that was my work so yeah part of that involved going up on the moors as well and, and did you ever catch any people in the act so to speak yeah it's it's funny you know people think wow that's exciting well nine times out of ten it wasn't You'd be sat in your backside and you dug a hole in the ground in, in a wood within a couple hundred metres of, uh, of a kite nest. It was usually kites in those days of a kite nest just waiting. You'd been tipped off and nine times out of ten, nothing would happen. But every now and again, something would. And that was really exciting. You know, we'd, we'd have an operation. One of the investigation uh, bods would come over from the lodge, maybe the local police involved as well sometimes. And uh, yeah, we 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 did catch quite a few of the very well known egg collectors, and they were well. I, when I was working for the RSPB, I think the the database had five hundred, nearly five hundred known active eggers on it. Oh, some yeah. some were were really hardcore, big time. Some were just you know they just steal the odd egg, and maybe they'd done it once or twice and never again. But yeah, it was it was a serious serious problem back then especially when you're talking about kites in the 80s we had i don't know maybe 60 60 70 pairs all of them in mid wales we'd lose anything up to 25 percent of those two eggers every year so it was a yeah. big loss you know it was a, a big big loss and i, I remember i had no idea uh, it was that that severe oh it was yeah it was it was a huge loss i, I, I mean it's odd because the rarer the bird, the bigger the prize for these eggers, you know, and, and people don't quite understand what it's for. It's, it's not to sell the eggs on. They don't sell the eggs. There's no monetary value. It's for their own possession. It's kind of like an obsession. Yeah. Uh, it's almost an addiction amongst these people. They've got to go out and if they can go out and, you know, the rarer the bird, the better. And if they know it's been worn, it's been guarded and they can get away with nicking the eggs then anyway, then, you know, then so much the better. But they can't. They can't brag about it. They can't tell all their mates, hey, come around my house, I'll give you a show of all the eggs I've got. Because if word gets out, then they'll be done. It's illegal. They'll be done. And, and the eggs these days, the people who are still at it, they usually keep the eggs in a lock-up garage or somewhere away from their own home. Right. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a serious, serious kind of problem. And, and, and if I'm honest with you, I, I detest them. I hate them. I went so many nights over 15 years with no sleep trying to catch these people and and some of them were quite nasty pieces of work and most of them weren't most of them you kind of catch them they, oh well okay but some were nasty and i'll i'll never forget one incident where <laughs> uh with the local police you know my first language is welsh and this local copper big birder his first language is welsh and well he's passed away now unfortunately and and so we'd talk in welsh we caught these two lads from the midlands they'd been at a kite nest the eggs had gone missing we know that what they'd done they put it in a tin they buried the tin in a rabbit hole somewhere and they were going to leave it there and come back months later when the nest wasn't guarded obviously and we knew this and we were really upset and pretty pissed off about the whole thing 
and they were bad mouthing us. We just walking them back to the car so that the policeman could search the car looking for for marked maps or, or climbing irons or ropes or whatever else. And um, we were talking in Welsh as we walked, and one of these lads, I, I better name names here, but one of the lads was just mouthing constantly, you know, calling us Welsh and, and, and sort of questioning whether my mum and dad were married and whether the policeman's mum and dad were married and even worse than that. And I must admit, you know, I was I was uh, quite fiery. Still, I'm a little bit, but I was far worse then. I was a big lad then as well. I was 16 stone. I was playing rugby four times a week. And the copper turned to me in, in Welsh and he said, you he said, I'm going to turn my back for two minutes. <laughs> now, whatever you do to him, he said, I will go to court and I will swear that he fell down a tree. <laughs> he said, and he just walked away and left me with these two lads, you know. Uh, I, 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 I'd be honest with you, I didn't do anything. I, 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 I genuinely didn't do anything, but I was sorely tempted, you know, because they were, they were just gobshites. They really were just gobshites, both of them. But uh, yeah, and, and that happened time and time again. You know, they were they were they were nice people. They really were nice people. Even even if it put a bit of fear through them, there's a certain gratification to that alone. You know, we're so frustrated. Yeah. It feels you know so frustrating when you you look through your Twitter feed and you see you know all these issues. You know, from egg collecting to persecution, habitat loss, and and that's really why sort of myself and friends um, started Dovestep. It was instead of just being frustrated, it was, you know, channeling all that energy into something, you know, and, and using um, Turtle Doves as a flagship, but as a flagship, but, you know, inclusive of all farmland birds, all migratory birds and, you know, birds on that flyway. So, yeah, I, you know, I used to get really, you know, angry, frustrated and yeah, I couldn't agree more, you know, and there'd be nothing more gratifying than tearing into those two but um, yeah, you know, in the long run, it's better to yeah have these, let's say, um, less instantly gratifying output. <laughs> you know, <laughs> well, do you know what, Johnny? I I thought I, I used to be a very angry young man and all this, and I became an angry middle-aged man. Now I'm <laughs> still an angry old man, and and I I think I think you're right partly, but I think every now and again you need the carrot and the stick, you know. And, and I'm a firm believer in using the stick every now and again. Yeah. And uh, if I was able to go back, I probably would have acted on it and thought this is going to make me feel a lot better if I bury these two here and now. Yeah. You know? But uh, yeah, it, but it is. And, and you know, going back to the turtle dove issue, um, and, and me going on about a, a lack of a of of, a, of an effective and efficient agri environment scheme in in Wales. Uh, I've been out and about in Wales a lot, you know, but you, what we have to remember is that there are some cracking farmers out there as well. There's a, there's a young lad, Geraint, he, he farms up near Bala in North Wales, and he's got two young girls, and, and he's brilliant. You know, he, he, he takes his girls out, shows them the birds on his farm. He's been putting in hedgerows and what have you, but he still farms, you know, he, he still farms the middle of the fields, of course, you know, they're not hay meadows or anything like that. He still farms, but he farms with an appreciation for the wildlife around him as well. And now, unfortunately, there aren't enough of them. You know, and I see around where I am here, there's some, you know, it's a couple of really nice farms, really good farmers, but there's some really bad ones uh, from a, a wildlife point of view and, and ones who really don't care at all. So we've got to remember that we can't just say, oh, you know, bloody farmers, blah, blah, blah. There's some good farmers and farmers on the whole are reacting 
to market forces. We want cheap food, you know, and if you want cheap food, if you want a lot of it, then this is what we've got to have. And, and I'm adamant that what we need is far less waste. We waste far too much food. And uh, we also need to think carefully about what we're eating and try and alter our diet somewhat to make sure that we're having less of an effect on the environment as a whole. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You, you go, um, I, I got a, a BBS square, literally about a mile and a half to the north of here. And it's just, just so happens that, yeah, you know, that, that is, um, I suppose, a hardcore farmer, you know, a big landowner farmer. But there's just enough copses, ponds and periphery, you know, peripheral habitat to make it interesting and to hold on to bits. I'm still yet to have turtle dove there, but, you know, I've had some good bits like curlew and they've got kite breeding. So it's, uh, you know, and, and normal uh, farmland birds. But then if you go, you know, two miles off to the to the northeast, you're into just no hedgerows, massive open fields. And, and it's just wasted. It's just dead land until you drop into, you know, a river valley. You get a little little collection of birds. But I need to look into it more. But there's a, a conglomerate, apparently, of 40 local Breckland farmers that have got together, allegedly, yeah. to, to do you know, that kind of, of habitat level, farm level changes across all 40 of their their land holdings. So there's glimmers, glimmers of hope, you know. Yeah, yeah. Oh, they, they, <laughs> I, I, I tell you, they, there's a farm in the Cotswolds as well. Um, and the farmer's name is Ian Boyd. And, and uh, if ever you have the opportunity, visit his farm. It is the most amazing farm I've ever been to. And it's actually better than a lot of nature reserves that I've been to. Wow. He's a farmer, you know, he makes good money out of it. He's got uh, traditional Hereford cattle there, but his hay meadows are amongst the best I've ever seen anywhere. He's got more hares. I saw more hares in one morning on his farm than I've seen in 12 months here in Wales. Still got corn bunting, yellow hammers, grey partridge, barn owl. Honestly, it is the most amazing farm. And I wish that a lot more farmers, okay, not everybody, because here in Wales it's mainly hill farms and sheep mainly, but, you know, from the Cotswolds, from similar areas, I wish more farmers would go and have a look and see what, what Ian's done there, because it, it's absolutely amazing. It really is. He's, he's a keen photographer. He loves his wildlife as well, which helps, but um, he, he's, he's a fabulous guy, really fabulous guy. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, so it, and it shows, then it, Johnny, that it it can be done. You know, it it can be done, and, and as long as the will is there, as long as there's some financial incentive there, it can be done. Where you can marry both, you know, and I, I, it just at the moment, of course, you know, if you think about it, if you step back and think about it, what happens the way we farm at the moment? It's big business that's um, making most money. You know, the big businesses, the big. Uh, fertilizer companies, the big chemical companies, the big machinery companies, the banks, and the government we've got now, this dreadful Tory government, it doesn't want to change anything because some of those will be on the boards or they'll be friends of people on the boards. And that's the way government works, unfortunately. Yeah, we we feel that quite acutely locally. You know, we're, we're just a, a, a safe blue seat. And I dare say yeah. loads of... Um, you know, Tory landowners and, you know, even second homeowners. So we're, we're cursed for all that for the lifetime of this, this government, a government that I wouldn't have faith in anyway, but then is preoccupied with Brexit and the pandemic. It's, 
It is a recipe for disaster, the, both the government and the circumstance. But um, yeah, 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 because the, the environment falls right off that list of priorities, which it shouldn't do. You know, even with COVID, even with Brexit, it should be right at the very top because that's what's going to kill us all in the end. And, and that's actually partially why we've got COVID today, because of our lack of respect for the environment and the creatures in it. You know, so uh, we 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 never learn lessons, do we? The human race, we never learn lessons. No, no, and I dare say you know we'll be looking at the next pandemic in four, five, however many years time, and we'll be making the same complaints. You know, the fourth yeah, lockdown. Yeah, we will. But there's um, there is another... Johnny for crying out like let's move on. I'm I'm depressing myself. <laughs> well, I was gonna I was gonna hit a positive there. A little positive is that one of the things we've made sure with every dove step. So. One to three, three point one. When we went up to Spurn and, and the upcoming effort, is that all the fundraising goes to delivered on the ground? Um, so we've had habitat creation in the eastern region, research on the on the wintering grounds. We had trial food plots where they were they were trialing um, you know, certain densities of feed to avoid cross uh, contamination of. Oh, I can't remember the name, but it's the same disease that greenfinch get. Trichomatosis, uh, trichomonosis, is it? That one, I believe. Yeah. yeah. So that's one of the reasons why, it, if you like, it's easy to keep doing grueling efforts because we've had this, you know, delivered. It's not just been a, a, an amount of money sort of that's left and never been seen again. You know, it's been channeled through Operation Turtle Dove to landowners and now directly to the uh, the North York's Turtle Dove project. So all of that requires, you know, good and willing landowners. So there is the good guys out there. Otherwise, we wouldn't yeah. be able to have this, um, yeah, you know, effective, you know, de- deploy, deploying of the of the fundraising. So on to yeah. cheerier things. Um, I don't know that the listener might not be aware of this, but you've done quite a lot of long distance walking yourself. Yeah, yeah, I, I have. I've walked uh, the length of Wales in a week. Uh, three times to raise money for the wheelchair ambulance. Um, I led. Uh, I've done a, a walk to raise money for Mencap. That was in Patagonia in two thousand eight, uh, and I went up Kilimanjaro about. I think that might have been two thousand twelve. I think that was. So yeah, I I just every now and again you, you feel you need some kind of challenge. You know, I'm I'm not a natural. Runner, look at me. I'm 15 and a half stone, you know. But when I was 40, I did the London Marathon to raise money for children with leukemia. And then when I hit 50, I thought, right, okay, I need some kind of challenge again. And that was Kilimanjaro, you know. So yeah, I I, I enjoy walking. The the sort of the the forced march walk is nowhere near as kind of pleasurable. You can't stop and watch the wildlife and stuff because you've got to just head down and just go go go. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, I, I think it's good to push yourself every now and again, and it makes it so much better if you are raising money for a good cause. Because not only is it good for the cause, but it's good for you as well. You know, you feel better in yourself. You think, well, I'm actually doing something worthwhile here. Because much of what we do, when you look at it, you think, well, you know, it's not that worthwhile, really. So yeah, I, I enjoy a challenge. I really do enjoy a challenge. Yeah, and and. Th- I think we've covered them all now, but you know that's why you couldn't be a better patron. You know, having worked for the RSPB, you know, having done endurance effort yourself, you know, been a passionate bird watcher. You know, the only reason we're in this um, was just through bird watching and then this organic growth and 
uh, you know, corresponding increase of fitness level. So it's all, yeah, all down to bird watching. But um, there is one. Yeah, but, but it's good, Johnny, isn't it? Because it, it shows, you know, bird watching, wildlife watching. Um, it, it, it's all linked in. It's linked into physical health. It's linked into mental health. And when you are out and about, you, know, you just make the effort. You get up off your seat. You go outside. You haven't got to go very far. You, you know, well, you can't go any further than five miles at the moment anyway. But you just walk. Even if you walk for 15, 20 minutes a day and just look and listen, it will help your mental health. I, I was talking to a mate of mine. She lives in the uh, middle of Birmingham. And she's in a kind of, well, not quite high rise, but it's a block of flats. And she's on the, I think on the fifth floor, fourth or fifth floor. And she looked out about a month ago now and saw a peregrine falcon and she said you know that that really raised my spirits at a time when you know we're just going into another lockdown i felt really low and that lifted me not just for that day but for that week and for the rest of the month really and now whenever i get home first thing she does is she gets a binox out and has a scan just in case you know because it'll be there somewhere it's not going anywhere yeah and and little things like that can help pull us through because I don't know about you, but I found this latest lockdown really quite hard. You know, all, all of my work has gone, uh, uh, apart from TV work, and, and I don't do that much TV stuff. Spring watch, winter watch, autumn watch, and one thing for BBC Wales, that's it. The rest is taken up usually by bits and bobs of radio and mainly by guiding, and all the guiding has gone. You know, it's the whole caboodle has gone. So that's a knock in the first place. You then can find within five miles of home, as much as I like walking, after a while, you know, I say hello to every single blade of grass. I, I could name them all for you now. So little things like that do lift you. And the fact that I know that in the next few weeks, you know, lesser celandine will be coming through. Primroses are already starting to show. I'll be seeing my first buffdale bumblebees. Hopefully we'll get another nice bit in spring where all the bee flies will come out again. I love bee flies. I remember, that, I remember that from the last lockdown. That was wicked, yeah. Yeah. It's on little things like that, you know, looking in my little pond, like a little pond in my garden, something big, two metres by a metre, and just watching the, the palmate newts, you know, the male fanning his tail, sending pheromones towards the female to get her in the mood. Yeah. Just little things like that lift you and you think, yeah, okay, come on, we can get through this. So, I, and, and I think, you know, what you're doing combines all of those things. You're getting physically fit. It helps your mental health. You're still out and about doing bird watching. And at the end of the day, you know you're raising money for a very, very good cause. Yeah, absolutely. And and going back on on a point you made there, that there's really only one path up for me to get into farmland and, and the River Valley. And I think I need to start paying the council council tax back because I think you know I've got a groove in that in that footpath from the it's the only really the only route you know from the house. Um, but there is yeah, there's this definite. I mean, there's absolutely a fatigue around this lockdown. Uh, you know, myself and my partner, we've had like, you know, low days and there's just the sheer uh, groundhog day of it all. But I had a black cap at the front of the house this morning feeding on elderberries, literally from the oh, kitchen wow. window. And that's my first winter in black cap from the, from the house itself. So that was a, a real, you know, pick me up this morning. And we've just had gently over the last few years uh, a real increase in red kite. I think yes. it was 2014-16 we had our first breeders um, just along the A14 corridor. But I've now got birds that I see every single run walk. You know, I see at least one of the pair. And, and that, 
is akin to your your friend's peregrine falcon. You know, that's you know, I've gone from you know, I see them almost every day, but it's still really exciting, really sort of uh, you know, pick me up stuff. So they've they've helped me a lot January through through this month. Yeah, it, it, it is. I'm I'm really lucky here because for the last three years now we've had a pair of kites nesting literally about 100 metres away from the house. Oh, so wow. I, I see them now, they're early nesters, of course, they'll be on eggs probably early to mid-April, yeah. and they're displaying now, and they're chasing away ravens and buzzards from right above the, the area where I know they're going to nest again. They yeah. nested successfully last year. And like you, over the weekend, I, I had a first for my garden. I had the first brambling ever in my garden on Saturday. Oh, wow, um, yeah. They, they, they're not very numerous down this neck of the woods this winter. You know, some winters you get real influx and especially when the beach mast is good there's a beach woods we're about four and a half five miles away and, and, and some winters you get 60 70 80 birds in a flock of finches there but that that's the first one i've had locally and that's a, the first one i've had in, in my garden since we moved in nearly 20 years ago now that that's a real bird. you know i have to go into the wider countryside to get them we, we've had a few this year but that's a, a real yeah that'd be a star of the show job um, we're in sort of a cul-de-sac at the end, um, and I've just yesterday moved my bird feeders to the front of the house because I'm pretty sure the reason that they just the birds will not touch them in the back garden is because of the the cats patrolling the fence. Yeah. And I, and I know that's a, a bugbear of yours, but I I did once, and I, I think it's still funny, but I once did a poster for that organisation called Songbird Survival. And yes. it was basically their logo, and I said, you know, you know, save a songbird, kill a cat, and it was, yeah. uh, you know, hideously, um, what's the right word? It was deliberately provocative and, and probably unacceptable. But I, I know you share something similar. You know, your your view on on domestic cats. Yeah, yeah, it, it is, and, and I do understand. You know, a, a lot, an awful lot of people, millions of people out there, love cats, and cats bring a lot of comfort, especially if you're living by yourself. And I can understand that uh, completely personally. I'm a dog person. I love dogs. We've nearly always had dogs. I haven't got any at the moment, but uh, what, because of work, you know, I'm, I'm usually away a lot. My wife is working full time. Um, but when when I slow down or she does, we will get more dogs. But the, my problem with cats isn't so much a cat itself as often the owners. Um, I, I put out uh, cameras here a couple of years ago, just see what came into the garden at night. I sort of baited it a little bit. I know we've got hedgehogs. I see them occasionally. We've got badgers, we've got foxes here. Um, I didn't get a single hedgehog. I got one fox and I got 12 different cats. 12 different cats. Now there's an old graveyard opposite me and down uh, probably 400 metres. And it's a fantastic old graveyard. When we first moved in 18 years ago, full of slow worms, full of um, uh, lizards, viviparous lizard, common lizard, whatever you want to call them. Um, they've all gone. They've all gone. I put cameras up there about eight, nine years ago. And I know why they've all gone, because it's, you know, day and night, it's alive with cats in there going in there. And the poor slow worms have got no chance. Um, I mean, they've been picked off by, you know, ravens and buzzards and crows. Naturally, you expect that. But with the volume, sheer volume of cats there, there's not a hope in hell, which is such a shame. I didn't even Such think... a shame. So yeah. that's my that's my problem. And if you added up everything, you, you're probably talking about, well, you are definitely talking about tens of millions. And it's not just birds. It's small mammals. It's uh, amphibians. It's reptiles. It's large insects. 
you know, it, it's all of these things being decimated by a domestic animal. And, and, and actually, you can add pheasants onto that list. That's another one on my hit list as well. <laughs> I, I yeah. hate pheasants for that same reason, yeah, because the pheasant's a beautiful bird. It's non-native. They release, what, 55, 60 million every year? Most of them are living here down the road from here. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I've got them everywhere here at the moment because uh, the shooting season ended end of January. So, you know, they're all over the shop here now. They're sprutting around. They're digging up uh, the leaf litter, looking for overwintering caterpillars, grubs. They'll eat uh, frogs, toads, especially the youngsters when they emerge out of the ponds. They will, uh, people don't realize, but they'll eat young grass snakes, young adders, lizards. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, they, yeah, they will. They, they're hugely destructive and releasing 60 million non native species into the UK countryside every year, of which they, they say, they, they're very honest, they say that, you know, fewer than 20 million are shot much fewer than that you know so yeah, that, that's 40 million well there will be other natural deaths but you're talking about 30 to 40 million pheasants out there that shouldn't be there so i'm 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 all for i'm all for banning it i've got to be honest completely banning it completely yeah, and i just i just didn't think beyond songbirds you know, songbirds you know beyond birds um but now you pointed it out yeah cats and and pheasants you know must be an incredible impact it's huge. It's, I mean, you know, there's no doubt habitat loss is the biggest issue we have. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. But, you, you know, what, what little is left. I tell you one thing, if you would add up what pheasants and cats take out, you know, and, and a lot of these songbird survival people want to take out uh, sparrowhawks and buzzards and all yeah. of these things, you know, I, I tell you what, they want to look at their own pheasants first. Uh, yeah, on, on sort of December day, I can walk from here to the... Um, BTO headquarters at Thetford, and it's ten miles door to door to my to my friend Nick Nick Moran who uh, did the last dovestep effort with me, and there's a shoot on every bit of land all the way up, all releasing yeah. you know pheasant partridge. Yeah, I just didn't think about it in terms of reptiles and amphibians as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, they'll oh, honestly they'll wipe the the place. Well, not clean, but they will. They'll really, really, really have a, a, a significant impact. And they, they, only now are they starting to look at these things. You know, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what the research shows. But uh, there's a nature reserve on Anglesey called Cotscoch. It belongs to the North, North Wales Wildlife Trust. It's a fantastic place. Uh, it used to be one of the best areas on Anglesey for, for seeing adders. It's still not bad. It's nowhere near as good as it was. And, and the adder population declined, started to decline about 15 years ago. Wow. That was when the farmer next door began his pheasant shoot. Wow. And you see pheasants coming over there now and you see them. And, and there was a student at Bangor University. I don't think it was ever written up, but he put plasticine adders down. And wow. you see the peck marks on them, the peck marks on, on the head. You, you know, they were just battered. Um, so it's yeah, it, it, it it's it, it's a big issue. It's a real big issue, and it's one. I'm I'm not. I'm, I, I get a lot of stick for being uh, for the fact that I don't particularly like cats. I get a lot of stick for being anti grey squirrels. I can't stand grey squirrels. Um, I'll not. I get a lot of stick for being anti pheasants. I get a lot of stick because I'm not actually anti shooting. Um, because as a young lad, I grew up in Mid Wales here. Um, kids in the village had a four ten, which is like a mini twelve ball. And I don't know whose it was to this day, but we used to go out, I used to shoot rabbits. But what I shot, we ate. 
And bear in mind, I'm going back to a time, sort of early 70s, when it's a pretty bleak time. There were power cuts, there were strikes and everything else, you know, and meat was really expensive. So if I shot a rabbit, it was a really useful addition to the family meat for that week. It, it, it genuinely was. So, so that's why I'm not anti-shooting as such, but it's the kind of shooting, it's what they shoot. And if you shoot for pleasure, if you're shooting living things for pleasure, then I would question your mental health. You know, I, I, I really would. Yeah, you've, you've pretty well encapsulated um, yeah, my, my opinion on the matter. And, my own, yeah, you know, up till relatively recently, uh, till I stopped eating meat, you know, when the, the wildfellows were out, they'd give me, um, you know, a, a few duck and we'd still, you know, I'd prepare them and eat them when my dog was still alive, you know, she'd get some as well. So it's only relatively recent that I've, recently that I've stopped eating meat but the problem was like you say never with shooting per se I'm out in the countryside all the time with gamekeepers shooters whatever, whatever. it's just yeah those really intensive um sport shoots you know um just driving all the pheasant over splatting them all on the fields not you know my dog used yeah. to dispatch some of the winged pheasant and duck yeah you know yes good, yeah, good yeah. Honor, it, really. it is and I think what I don't I genuinely don't understand is What's the difference between standing by a peg, by, by a post, you've got a loader for your spare gun, and all you're doing is bang, bang, okay? You give the loader your empty gun, then you take the other gun that he's loaded for, or she has loaded for you, bang, bang. Why not clay pigeons? Yeah. Why not clay pigeons? You know, there's no difference in it. You, very few of the pheasants are, are, are eaten afterwards on these big shoots. They, they bury them. They yeah. bury them, you know. Big, big no, no, any, yeah, we see big pits. Yeah, they do. They, they bury them. I got mates who are keepers. I know about, know pretty well, probably about seven or eight keepers, right? And a couple of them are, 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 are brutes. They're brutal individuals that I wouldn't trust with a dog or with anything. The others are decent people. A couple of them are really good naturalists. And those two are not happy with what they've been asked to do. They say, we're basically farmers. We're just farming pheasants, you know, and then we know that on a big day, where however many it is, we'll bury them. We'll just dig a hole and bury them. That's what they do. You know, so, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it beggars belief to me anyway. Yeah, agreed. We've, we've gone down the... Um... The sort of uh, the negative rabbit hole again, but there is there is one thing I, I really did want to speak to you about, and it was one of the, the highlights last year. I couldn't get up to Cumbria. I normally go up and see my my mum and stepdad who who go there every October, and I couldn't see friends in in Scotland or or indeed uh, you know friends over in in North Wales. Our mutual friend Mark. Yeah. So I'm completely devoid of mountains. You know, so one one thing I really enjoyed was your program on on the Cambrian Hills. Oh yeah, the and, Cambrian Mountains. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a cracking part of Wales, and it's probably the least well known part of Wales as well. Um, a lot of it is is really wild. It's probably the only part of Wales where you can walk best part of a day, half a day, and not see anyone. You know, you're lucky up in Scotland. You've got areas where you can lose yourself for for days on end, but in Wales, that's probably the only part. Snowdonia, yeah, you've got quiet parts there, but you will bump into people. Whereas uh, parts of the Cambrian Mountains, you know, I've, I've walked and walked and walked all day and seen nobody in, until I've got back down to my car. So it's it's um, 
it's a cracking part of the world. Um, and, and of course, up until last year, we had a golden eagle there as well. I, know, I, living. I, I absolutely loved that. It, it looked like it belonged there. And um... oh, she, a, a beautiful bird, and I'm I'm absolutely devastated that she's gone. Um, and of course, there's a big ruckus. She was shot. She was shot. Um, they found uh, one bit of lead in her leg. I, I'm not convinced that's what killed her. I really am not. I, I, I know the landowners in the area where she hung, hung around for the last few years really quite well. And I've never been anywhere where every single farmer was delighted to have a golden eagle there. And I mean, genuinely excited about it yeah. and quite protective of the bird. You know, they, they they wouldn't necessarily tell you where she roosted or where she hung around because it didn't actually want people going in there and what, what, what have you. And, and when she was found dead, uh, which was July, August last year, I walked around and, and they, they were gutted. They were really gutted. And even the village, uh, the local town, Trigaron, you know, she, she'd been something of a draw. She was pulling in some bird watchers. Yeah. And so it helped the pub, it helped the shops. And, and there was... A, there was um, a, a, a collective sigh of of desperation, really, when she was picked up dead. Yeah, but bear in mind she was 13, 14 years old, um, and I, I know golden eagles can live twenty years plus. Yeah, but that's that's a reasonable age for a golden eagle. So, um, but I, I'm the reason I'm gutted is because we didn't take the opportunity with a, a female golden eagle there to just you know let a male go and and. Hand on my heart, if I knew someone with a male golden eagle, I would have gone up there, said nothing to anyone, stuck it in the back of the car, taken it down, let it go in the hope that something happened. Because if you would have followed the the um, the official route and gone through Natural Resources Wales, I tell you now, you would have got nowhere. Yeah. You talk to the people trying to bring beaver back to Wales and Natural Resources Wales are putting as many obstacles in their way as they possibly can. They yeah, really are. Nice now, I'm hammering uh, I'm hammering natural resources wheels here. There are some good people working for them. They really are. But but at policy level, you know, you haven't got a hope in hell. You have not got a hope in hell to get anything away. You you think how far behind we are with our beaver work here. Yeah. Uh, you look at Scotland, you look at England, very Essex. progressive in yeah. in some ways, you, you know, looking at uh, the Forest of Dean now bringing them back there and what have you. In Wales, we've got nowhere, and we've got nowhere simply because natural resources of Wales are putting obstacles in their way. Oh, well, we need to... There's the Montgomeryshire Wildlife Trust. Just give you an example. Montgomeryshire Wildlife Trust has um, wants to put beaver in a pen, in, so they're enclosed in a pen on its dovey um, reserve, not far from Machantleth. And Natural Resources Wales insisted that it did a public consultation. They don't need to. They don't need to. It's in a pen. If it's going to be a, a release into the wild, that's different. But this was in a pen. But that's typical of Natural Resources Wales. Honestly, they're a, yeah, yeah, there's a there's a lot of people really not happy with them at all. But as I say, well, you've got to remember there's some really good people working for them that feel probably more frustrated than I am. But it's it's a body that was set up to hinder nature conservation. There's no doubt about that at all. Yeah, uh, you, I mean, you've answered one question I had. Uh, you know, quite emphatically, like you, you'd happily see uh, golden eagles released into into the Cambrian Mountains. 
So um... yeah, I, I I would, but but what I will say as well is that there's a, there's a there's an organisation called Eagle Reintroduction Wales, and hats off them. They're working with Cardiff University. They're working with um, the Roy Dennis Foundation, and they're looking at this properly. They're not just going to get ten golden eagles and chuck them out. You know, they're actually looking at the feasibility. We know that that part of Wales can hold one golden eagle, yeah. a female. But having a breeding pair is something very different. Yeah. And we don't have mountain hares. We don't have ptarmigan. We don't have the volume of rabbits they have in parts of Scotland. We don't have the grouse they have on the moors up there. Um, so, you know, is there enough wild food to sustain breeding eagles? That's what Eagle Reintroduction of Wales is looking at. And that's the way to do it because... What I would hate to see is that we end up with two, three pairs of golden eagles and that they're feeding mainly off lambs. You know, that's what we really don't want because, as I said, the Trigaran area, the farmers there were fantastic. But if you had two pairs of golden eagles and they started hammering the lambs, then that would that would change things, you know. And, and, and so Eagle Reintroduction Wales is going about things the right way. Is it feasible? And if it isn't, then we've got to say, well, very sorry at the moment, it isn't feasible, you know. But if it is, I would love to see golden eagles back in Wales. I'd love to. They're one of my, they're one of my favourite birds, you know. But just because they just, they're just so regal, uh, so noble, and just amazing, amazing creatures. Yeah, could, couldn't agree more. Um, now, I don't know if I saw the horsewater bird over in the Lake District. I may have, as as a very young lad, you know, I might have seen it with my granddad or my dad or or my you know my my step parents. I might have, but I don't know categorically. So I'm preoccupied with seeing an English golden eagle, um, you know, like borderline obsessive. But um, I, I've got a race <laughs> coming up in in Kilda that was uh, it's been uh, they changed the date from March last year to March this year. It's now going to be May end. And at either side of that race, I'm going to go and um, just spend some time up on, on Kielder Moor, uh, Kielder Head yeah. Moor, and just, maybe it's a, a fantasy, but maybe I'll see one of the Southern Scottish birds, you know, just, just roaming around if the weather's kind and I get a fair wind, but that would be magic. So, you know, I feel an affinity with you seeing, a, you know, that golden eagle in Wales. You know, I, I dare to dream that I might see one in England, you know. Maybe even in May, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> they, they're just, they're fantastic birds. And seeing them in Scotland is one thing, but when you see them, I mean, I call the whole of Wales my, my home patch, but when you see one on your home patch, it, it is different. And, and we we um, picked up a couple of dead rabbits off the road and, and we pegged them out in a, in a field, you know, and uh, we left it for a day. The next day we went in in a hide, and we were maybe 100 metres away and well hidden in a small copse looking out at these pegged rabbits. And we watched all morning as, first of all, uh, the magpies came in because they're very wary. They, they came in, started to feed and a uh, few carrying crows. A couple of ravens came in and they, they're amazing birds. Well, buzzards came in, kites came in, kites galore. We must have had a dozen or more kites coming in. And then around midday, just after midday, I think it was, all of a sudden this Leviathan came in and all the other birds, you know, just bowed to it, just made way for it to land there. And whereas the other birds, even the ravens had had some difficulty getting getting through the skin of the, one of the rabbits, 
the eagle, she just picked it up in one talon, put a beak to it, and more or less tore it straight in half. You know, the, oh, yeah. the power of that bird and to be to be in the presence. Well, I I I sort of thought I was in the presence of royalty. I yeah. really did. You're watching that bird. I thought, wow, you know, that is top of the food chain. You know, she's above me in the food chain. And and she was, she was a cracker. And I was I, I was quite distraught when she was picked up dead. I just thought, ah, you know, it's it just we've lost something, lost more than just a bird from Mid Wales. You've lost something really special, that link with the past, you know, when we used to have eagles. Yeah. I, I think as well, living in Suffolk, an eagle, excepting we could get, you know, a wandering white tailed perhaps, but just just an eagle would be the exact opposite of my year 2020 and so far 2021, it would just be, like you say, you know, majesty, wild place. It would be, uh, yeah, it would be real, real deal as and when and touch wood it happens. So what, what's your biggest message for the listener as we look into whatever 2021 might bring and, and beyond? What, what's sort of the, the message you'd leave the listener with? The, the message... Uh, the main message I would have, I mean, I could think of all kinds of things, you know, make sure your vote counts and get involved and all this kind of thing. Uh, do what you can in your, your own patch in your garden, all those messages. But the, I think the main message to pass on is just enjoy your wildlife. Just really enjoy your wildlife. Make the most of everything. If you're going up to Scotland to look at Capercaillie or if you're in your own garden watching bee flies sucking nectar from some of the the flowers there it, it doesn't matter just enjoy your wildlife because if you enjoy it you really appreciate it and it means you're going to do more to fight for it that's it and and I, I would think that you know fighting for wildlife fighting for nature that you know I would say that you are someone who who has done that and you know long long will you continue through your own efforts and then you know spring watch and, and the and the tv output so yeah thank you very much for lending your support to dovestep and we'll we'll seek to do you proud come may uh, when we when we clock our next our next mileage so that 50 50 50 miles the first day 50 kilometers a second if all goes well and we're allowed so yeah just just thanks again it's uh, yeah really appreciated Fantastic, Johnny. And listen, good luck. And in two years' time, I'll be 60, so I'll be looking for my next big challenge. So if you've got a, a walking challenge in two years' time, let me know. Right. I'll, I'll hold you to that. We'll see what we can think of. <laughs> <laughs> nice one, Johnny. Thank you very much and good luck. And thank you. Cheers, sir. We are absolutely delighted to have YOLO as the first Dovestep patron. As I said, we're hoping to do him proud come May on Dovestep Rehab when we start clocking some big mileage as ever for turtle doves. We're also hoping to do all Dovestep supporters proud, everyone who supported previous efforts, everyone who shares, retweets and engages online, everyone who loves turtle doves just as much as we do and of course farmland birds other migratory species along the same flyway and all our wildlife so there's really only one last thing for me to say 
Please don't forget turtle doves and please don't forget dovestep.